Well, good morning, everybody. I am so glad that you guys are here as we begin this uh, third leg of this series in Genesis that we've been in. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can come with me to Genesis chapter 11. And as I do the recap, that will be where we start in verse 27. That's where this whole grand patriarchal narrative seems to begin. Um, But let's just kind of recap from where we've been and where we are now. So uh, in the first leg of the series, we talked about the fact that God is a God of order and he creates the world for this purpose. He creates the world in order and it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Everything is good and he has set over that good creation um, Adam and Eve who are priests and kings to rule and to reign and to minister uh, basically God's will towards the world. So they they are called to do a couple of things. They are called to be fruitful and multiply. So there's a seed component to what they're supposed to do. Um, They are called to subdue the earth, uh, which in that way is um, a land component. They are supposed to uh, take over the world and bring it into the order that God has created that God desires and that God uh, creates his part in. And he has called us to uh, this mutual place where we work with him, which is a pretty awesome thing. I think it's powerful for all of us to know that God from the beginning has always called us to be co-laborers with him. And that, I think, is a very beautiful truth. And so uh, the last piece, though, of all of this is that as God's image bearers, as uh, kings and priests, there is a reflection of God to go into, the, into all the world. And so Adam does this thing where he recognizes the purpose uh, and the value of God's creation, and then he declares that purpose. This is what we understand by the naming of the animals. And so in that respect, we actually have a blessing component of all of this story, which is really cool. So, so again, think about this really quickly. We have, we have a commission in the ordered world that God has called, and that is a seed component. We have a land component, and we have a blessing component. And all of those things are going to stay put all the way up until this Abraham moment, uh, who starts as Abram and then gets his name changed. But uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue up to this point and then it's going to take root as God's plan to reorder everything. So after we have God creating a world in order in which he calls it good, we, we do what we do best, right? And that is we sin and we fall short and we create disorder to the whole story. And this happens repeatedly in, in the Genesis narrative. So we not only have Adam and Eve disobeying and not trusting God for the knowledge of good and evil, but we also move just one generation forward and we have Cain who doesn't want to give God his best best, but instead simply gives whatever he has. Then Abel is valued because of Abel's offering, and in light of that, he is jealous and he murders his brother. Okay. Now, he doesn't have to do that. God specifically tells him that he can, he can squash sin, uh, but that he has to be aware of it, that it's crouching at the door, and, uh, and so he needs to take control of it, but he doesn't do that, right? And so again, we have potential for order, potential for saying no to sin, but disorder rules and reigns. And the story continues. There's all kinds of weird, obscure stories uh, that transition from that point until the flood. And, and then we have this 
part where God is judging all of humanity. And it's a pretty brutal thing, and it leads us to a lot of questions. A lot of questions about what is the Bible conveying? Is the Bible conveying an actual truth? Is it conveying a a legend or a mythology that is intended to communicate truth, which is usually what that was for? And so it begins a a great debate on what was going on there. But uh, the the viewpoint that I take is that the, the is that the flood, whether global or localized, was an actual event in human history, and the justification for that is that it transcends just the biblical narrative. Uh, All ancient Near Eastern myths seem to communicate some concept of this flood. But God is decided that he he is tired of the disorder of the world, and then he's going to reorder it, and he's going to choose a vessel and choose a people through which to to bring order. So just track the the scheme already, right? We've got Adam and Eve. They are they are chosen, but they were the only they were the first. So they but they were chosen for a purpose. Reflect God's image into the world, be kings and priests. They go wrong. Then we have Noah and God selects Noah and he selects his family and they are supposed to carry this truth, this beauty, this blessing into the world, okay? And then that goes wrong. So Noah gets off the boat and uh, plants a garden or plants a vineyard rather. And then the scripture says that he drinks of the, the wine of that vineyard and he gets a little tipsy and decides to go into his tent, right? And then there's this weird stuff that happens between him and his son Ham, which is all kinds of debatable craziness. But anyway, something happens between him and Ham and Ham becomes... Um, cursed. And this all matters to what we read when we understand the story of Abraham. And so Ham is cursed and he becomes the father and uh, the leader in this land of Canaan, right? The Canaanite people. And so he has to go off to this kind of thing. And meanwhile, uh, Noah has two other sons. He has Shem and he has Japheth. And Shem becomes the chosen path through which God is still planning to reorder the world, okay? So the world is created in order and it is good, and yet there are components that God wants us to work with, right? And so he calls Adam and Eve to be a part of this plan. They do wrong. Now we have Cain, he does wrong. Now we have Noah. Noah and his family, Noah does wrong and Ham does wrong. Now we have Shem and we have this plan to go through and reorder the world. Now, we go generations on and we get to the Tower of Babel and and the people of God. And this is a really complicated story because on its surface, it brings up a crap ton of questions. There you go. There's Nathan's preaching for you. Anyway, so it brings up a lot of questions. And the questions are, if God sees the people of the world unified in their language, coming together to build this structure to honor themselves effectively to make a name for themselves why is the god of order decide to disorder that why is that the case and it brings up just kinds of fun philosophical questions but i think at the core of it is because their heart is order apart from god and i don't know if you know this but order apart from god is the greatest form of disorder that you can have 
Okay. And so, so these people try to create this whole tower and, and this ziggurat concept really is a temple structure and it's kind of thumbing their nose at God that they don't need this. So God comes and he scatters the languages and he spreads the people out all over the world. They, they go and they're, they're all confused and everything is working this. And generations later, we arrive at this strange story of a man named Terah and his son, Abram. Abram. That's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 27. You're going to see those connections tie together as we go through this amazing story. So in Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 27, this is what we read in scripture. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Um, so this would make Lot the nephew of Abram. Okay, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Sarai was barren. That's obviously a huge part to this great narrative that we read, but just remember that we see this first in Genesis 11. Sarah, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So, so what we seem to have here is this kind of story of what was going on, who these people are. But then we enter into chapter 12, and it, it's kind of um, filling in the blanks of some of what we're dealing with. We're introduced to a couple of characters. We've got Abram. Characters that matter in this great story, uh, ultimately, we have Abram, we have Sarai, we have uh, Terah, and we have this character named Lot. And I'm not going to get into a lot, a lot of detail about Lot today, right? This is, that's as good as my jokes are going to get today. Anyway, so, um, so I won't get into a lot of detail, but Lot was the son of Haran and the grandson of Terah. Okay, that's what we just read. So after his father dies, he aligns himself with his uncle, Abram, and accompanies him in this migration that we see here, right? So Lot plays an important role uh, at several points in this story. So we are going to spend a great deal of time at, uh, um, in the future on Lot. So he plays this important role at several points. Um, in, in Abraham's story. The first point is that Lot uh, accompanies Terah and the rest of the clan from Ur to Haran. That's in verse 31. Uh, later, he accompanies Abram to Canaan. That's found in chapter 12, verse 5. And after they arrive in Canaan, Lot leaves Abram and moves into the Jordan Valley. And I love the, the beauty of the story because the choice was given to Lot... And this is just an interesting thing. The choice was given to Lot, and just like in casting Lot's in some strange way, Lot chose this 
Jordan Valley, but God had planned for Abram to have what Abram had. And so it's a beautiful way in which God is sovereignly working out his great plan, even by giving man choices. Okay, So it's, a, it's just a beautiful piece in this story. So what we have is Lot leaving Abram and moves into the Jordan Valley. And this is a decision that places Abram right in the heart of the land that God had promised him. Lot's choice also places him in harm's way, and Abram has to come and rescue him on several occasions. So let's, let's walk through this uh, story. In verse 28, it says that Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. So uh, this is a debated place, okay, Ur of the Chaldeans. It's possibly a Sumerian coastal city, um, and then the other possibility, I should have written this down. But anyway, so it's a, it's a coastal city near this place in southern Mesopotamia, or it could be located in the north, northwest, wherever that is located by. Anyway, it is likely, though, that the Chaldean location, and I know this is kind of geeky information and just fun for, for those who like to study these things, it is most likely that Abram is leaving the northern place. Based on geography and how he's moving, it makes more sense to what he's doing. Uh, so again, there's two cities known as Ur. Um, Akkadian tablets from the archives of Ugarit speak of merchants from the city of Ura, which was under Hittite control. The administrative records, and I love this, the administrative records note that Ura was a city whose occupants specialized in foreign trade. You're, you may wonder, where are you going with this, or why does this matter? It kind of sets up the stage for who Abram really is as an individual, okay? So these traders were, um, were kind of nomads, right? Um, but they were international caravan traders, and the description of these international caravan traders seems to fit the patriarchs. It seems to fit what we learn about the patriarchs. And we see some of this in Genesis 34.10 and Genesis 42 as well. At times, uh, these traders were permitted to acquire real estate uh, in lands where they did business. Okay, so they, they were permitted to do this. And in Genesis 23, Abraham purchases the cave of uh, Machpelah for, uh, from the Hittites at Hebron. So it seems that who, who Abram really is, is one of these foreign traders, these, uh, these kind of um, uh, nomads, caravan traders that go around the world. This, this really does make sense for why Abraham seems to be wealthy. Okay, Abraham seems to be wealthy. It's just a fascinating piece of all of that. So I just want to give you a little background. We'll always be giving you background more and more as this story unfolds. The next verse in 29 says that Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Um, she later gets this name changed to Sarah in Genesis 17, verse 15. Sarai means princess, 
but it can mean queen if derived uh, in an Akkadian language. What I love about this idea of queen is that it goes back to God restarting Eden in some way right? There's kings and priests that are going on. And what you have is this beautiful promise that is made through a new Adam and a new Eve, if you will, okay? And yet again, they're going to have to trust God for their story. And yet again, they don't, okay? So, I mean, this is just human history, right? So then we go to verse uh, 30, and it says that Sarai was barren in this time. Uh, Sarai was barren, and it provides uh, kind of in every good story, there's drama, right? And so it provides this really good drama for, um, for what happens between these two. So then we move to verse 31. And Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. Okay, so in verse 31, we see this city of Haran, right? And it's a city in the upper Euphrates, uh, on the upper Euphrates River, in the northwestern part of Mesopotamia. And the city is mentioned later uh, in the list of places conquered by a king named Sennacherib. And, you know, maybe before Jesus returns, we'll get to there because of the slow pace that Nathan does series. Anyway, right? So, so it's, it's interesting how all of this stuff, you would think... You would think, duh, it's all in the same area. It should all interconnect. But sometimes we read the Bible and we don't connect all the dots. We don't connect all the dots that all of the, these people, Abram and coming from Terah and Lot and all of this, these are all descendants of Shem, right? And Shem was told in the story of Noah, Shem was told that he would be this chosen one he would be the the one that was blessed and that the young would serve him so Canaan or Ham would serve him it seems to point more towards the direction of why Canaan is that land right or this beautiful place in which Shem's descendants are to go as the promised land they're going to be there and everybody in this place is going to end up serving them in some capacity in chapter 11, verse 32, we see that Terah dies in Haran, and this explains the circumstances that we get to in the next chapter. So, let's turn to chapter 12, and we'll walk through this. And I promise you, all of this crazy history lesson is leading somewhere. So, we start in chapter 12, verse 1, and it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And ultimately this land becomes, the, this land is the promised land, right? So let's, let's look at this idea in, um, in verse 1 right off the bat. So biblical genealogies indicate that Abram is the 10th generation from Shem. Okay, so he's the 10th generation down, which is the son of Noah, right? Tenth generation down, son of Noah. I'm sorry, my, uh, my notes are not working with me right now. Well, now I'm mad. Do you know how much I love technology? I, I don't. I love technology when it works. You are right. You are correct in that. Hold on. Let me get this working, guys. I'm sorry. There we go. It recognized my face. That's half the battle, right? 
They could help me. There is no doubt about this, sir. They could help me. So, so what we have is we've got the 10th generation from Shem, this, uh, which is the son of Noah, and it has been 10 generations. This is really important. It's been 10 generations since Yahweh has spoken directly to anyone according to the biblical account, okay? So we see this repeated throughout the story in the Bible where God goes silent at times, and then he re-ups his communication with his people, and it's usually at a, a clear epoch, a clear time, a, a time when, when the story is going to change, right? So Yahweh speaks directly uh, to Abram in this. Previously, God gave humanity a blessing and a promise after the flood, right? He gives this blessing and this promise. Now, after the judgment at the Tower of Babel, uh, God speaks a blessing to the world again, and that blessing is through Abram. So, at the beginning of this, I did a recap, and I told you that there were three components in Genesis. We had a land component, we had a seed component, and we had a blessing component. And right now, in the reordering of the world, which is why I've titled the series Reorder and Man, uh, we are going to see God's beginning of the reordering of the whole process. This is what God is, in fact, doing here. So, so what we have is that God gives humanity a blessing at the flood, God gives judgment at the Tower of Babel, and God speaks a blessing to the world again through this character named Abram. And so it says, Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go forth from your country. What do you think go forth is, is doing here? It's telling him to leave, but it is testing, in many ways, it is testing Abram's faith. You have to go in order to accomplish the goal that I've got for you. Now, of course, we can make all kinds of human, you know, practical life lessons out of these things. Some are going to be applicable. Some are preachers stretching crap really far to make it sound like they're smart, right? Whatever. But the reality is, in many cases of life, you do have to trust God and leave some sort of comfort zone in order to do what he's asked you to do. I think all of us know this when it comes to going and preaching the gospel and sharing our faith with the rest of the world. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah, it's uncomfortable. So you, in faith, have to step out, right? So what we have is we have Abram, and he is called to go forth from his country. Abram, again, is living in Haran in the northwestern part of Mesopotamia. Yahweh's command that Abram go is followed by three details, right? Abram is to leave his country or land. He is to leave his birthplace or homeland, and he has to leave his father's household. The list seems to increase in intimacy, right? I actually love the parallels of this when you think about what Jesus does when he calls his disciples, right? He seems to call his disciples out of basic things first, but ultimately to a point where he says, I want you to reject all things to come and follow me. And if you want a really good lesson on this idea of what it means to follow after God, uh, Adam Black did a great job, and we'll have that uploaded uh, on uh, the podcast this week so that you can listen back to that message. It's really a, a great message. So, so he calls Abram to go forth, and it seems similar to the, uh, to the call to, to the disciples to follow after Jesus. Yahweh's command 
Again, followed by three details. Leave your country or land, leave your birthplace or homeland, and your father's household, right? Each successive detail in this section seems to sharpen what Abram has to actually leave, what the cost is inside of discipleship. So it says, first, go forth from your country, seems to be land, and from your relatives, relatives, the Hebrew word here, um, I am no Hebrew person, but I believe, or scholar in any way, but the word is pronounced moldeth. Let's go to, let's go to our expert on this. It's moldeth. Close enough. I love it. So, yes. Unless I'm going to spit, I'm not going to get close enough, right? So, okay. So, um, so, and it can refer, and this is important for us to know, it can refer to someone's native land, right? We see this in Ruth and in Jeremiah. Um, it also refers to relatives or children, Genesis 43 and 48, but in this context, a reference to birthplace makes the most sense. Why does birthplace make the most sense? Because of what follows, right? The extended family is added afterward under the following reference. So again, he says, go forth from your country, from your relatives. What would that mean? From your birthplace and from your relatives, from your father's house, right? It seems like it makes sense that way. And then the last piece is he says, to the land which I will show you. The land referring to the land of Canaan. Verse 5 talks about this. Um, this is the first of three promises, and we're going to walk through each one of these. But here's what I love about this. Right away, we're seeing the land component fulfilled here. And that land component is God told Adam and Eve to go into all the world and to subdue it, Right? to take over the land and to bring it into order. And now God is going to put Abram in a place from which almost an Eden, a promised land, he is going to put him in a place from which the promise is going to spread, which is the blessing to all the world, okay? And that becomes a powerful thing. So first, keep in your mind a land component. Verse 2. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be blessed. Okay, I will make you a great nation. Yahweh's second promise to Abram is, uh, it refers to, um, uh, I, I believe it was Dr. Heiser who said, miraculous multiplication. Okay, and miraculous multiplication because of some of the things that God says to Abram later when he talks about if they can count the sand on the seashore, then they'll be able to count your descendants, which was a point of impossibility. You're going to have this massive multiplication. So Abram and his wife are simply two people, and remember what we learned in chapter 11. What is Sarah's condition? She's barren. So the promise is given, and it seems they already know that that's weird. Okay? It seems they already know that that's weird. I don't know. Up for interpretation there. But the point is, you have two people past childbearing age, but what are they called to do? Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> right? And so second, we have a seed component. We have a land component from which Edenic states, you know, uh, transfer to the rest of the world and then we have the seed component which is that God's people are actually going to be blessed but God's people according to the next verse are going to be a blessing to the rest of the world and we'll get to this last 
blessing component here in a second. So what we have is a great nation, this multiplication. It is unclear whether the covenant relationship between Abram and God begins here or it begins later in Genesis 15. And the reason why we want to ask that, or even Genesis 17 where circumcision comes into view, the reason why we have to ask that question is because we have to understand something about covenants. So covenant is an agreement in ancient times, it's an agreement enacted between two parties in which one or both make promises under an oath to perform or to refrain from certain actions. Like God went into a covenant with the world after the flood by saying, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to flood the place again. Okay? So in some sense, we have the Noahic covenant. Okay? Now, where Abraham's covenant begins is, again, debatable by, uh, debated by scholars because it could be that we have just this established point, but later we have the, uh, the part of the covenant that says, and you have a part to play inside of this. But a covenant was a, a, an agreement between two parties, right? And why I love this is because when we get into the New Testament and when we are called to... Um, follow after Jesus, and when we are told that we are saved by grace through faith, we do not enter into a covenant that doesn't have an agreement on our behalf. It still has an agreement to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It still has an agreement that says you must love your neighbor as yourself. It still has an agreement that says you must follow after him. It still has this agreement. The agreement is simply for our life to prosper and to be full and to thrive, okay? Because what God did, both in the old covenant and in the new, is establish everything by sheer grace. He just loves people. And that's what he does. And then he calls people to do things. This reminds me of the statement that I make over and over, quoting Dallas Willard, that is a reminder to Christians and a reminder to all people who follow God that God is not opposed to effort, church. As a matter of fact, you cannot read the pages of Scripture from cover to cover and walk away with the idea that God doesn't care about your effort. What did he call everybody to do in the Great Commission? To go and teach people to obey all that I command you. That takes effort. A whole lot of effort. You know it takes effort to follow after Jesus. You know that it takes effort to leave your homeland. It takes effort in all things. And this effort is a sign of the trust that you have in Jesus. It is a faith that you walk in, right? And So God is not opposed to effort. He is opposed to earning. He will do it. And every story that we've walked through up to this point, always uh, the problem inside of the story is that people keep trying to insert their earning part. They keep trying to make it happen. Okay? And we see this problem over and over. Now, universal principle that can be true for you. God may have promised you things in your life, people. He may have promised you things in your life. And when he is not doing it according to your timeline, you want to hurry it along, right? How many of you are impatient? How many of you are liars? 
Yes, that's the point, right? <laughs> I'm an impatient liar. Okay, so this is really, really important. But we are impatient and we push God to uh, hurry his plan. And he says, no, I'm going to do it my way. Or, and if he doesn't hurry up, we take it into our own hands. And this story recurs throughout scripture and throughout human history, right? So, so far we have a land component. So far, we have a seed component, and in that seed component, God has told Abram something beautiful. He says, I will make your name great. I will make your name great. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be unique. That third promise that God gives, that Yahweh gives to Abram, is a promise of renown and reputation, but primarily, it's a, it's a promise of blessing, both to Abram, and from Abram and his descendants to the rest of the world. So let's read verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those, curse, uh, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's the direction of that blessing? It's towards us. It's towards us. And it's from this promise. So God blesses them, and then they bless us. What a, what a beautiful reality. Let's look back at curse for a second. Uh, anyone who curses you, this first term is, I believe, best interpreted as uh, anyone who reviles you, okay? How many of you know that the Jewish people have been reviled pretty much at one point or another their whole entire existence, right? They've been reviled, okay? God's promise to Abram is that the one who reviles you he then hits them with this. He says, I will curse you. And, and so in, in this context, in this understanding, it seems to be that God is going to, if they revile you, I will bind them under a curse. I will bind them under a curse. And I do believe that this happens. When we, when we are pushing back against what God chooses, what God does, I think we are bound under something. I think when we look in the new covenant, we are in the same way if we are going to blaspheme the name of God. If we are going to curse God, there is no forgiveness in this. This rejection of him binds you under a reality that says, fine, have it your way. Right? And that curse is miserable because the blessings are cut off from you. The future, all of that is cut off from you, right? So, verse 3 says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you or reviles you, I will bind them under a curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, this third um, component. We have a land component. We have a seed component. And then we have a blessing component. These three components that are visible here start our story of Abraham, start our story of where we're going inside of this. And it starts it with this idea. God is beginning to reorder the world we messed up, okay? Now, all of us know, because we've probably read our Bibles, they don't do so well when it comes to this. But there's something beautiful about this promise that God makes. And that is that this promise is not contingent on what we do or don't do. It's actually true all the way from Genesis. God is always planned, has always planned, and will always bring about people to reflect his image into the world and to bless others 
and to bring glory to his name. And he will never break that promise. And the evidence of him not breaking that promise is this ridiculously long storyline over thousands of years in which God fulfills his promise in King Jesus and continues to fulfill his promise through his church. It's a really important thing that our responsibility as the church includes these three components, these three blessings, because they're the same thing, right? There is a land component to the gospel and to the church. Do you know what the land is? The whole world. Go into all the world. We are going to make this entire planet, according to Scripture, we're going to make this entire planet God's temple and his kingdom. Isn't that beautiful? There is also a seed component. No, I do not believe it is a necessary mandate for Christians to have to have 75 children. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that that's the case. 74? Fine. No, I don't, I don't actually believe that that's the mandate. But I do believe the seed component is that we go into the world and as we preach the gospel and people respond in faith, what is created? Children of God. God says, I can make children out of rocks. He makes children out of us when we trust him, okay? So we have a seed component inside of this. And last but not least, as Christians, as the recipients of all of the blessings that were given to Abram, we are now the, the people who bear the component of blessing, the blessing promise to all the world. What greater blessing can the world receive than to know the King and Savior who made them and wants to love them and bless them? What, how much better do you get from this, right? Why do I share that? One, because I hope you can see the beauty of the gospel. But two, I want you to see that God's story never changes. God's story never changes. Although there are really bad times in this story, there are wars and there, there is hatred and there is betrayal and there is all of this different stuff, the story has never changed. It doesn't change. And you and I are invited into this promise that was back in Eden and given again to Abram and now given to us through King Jesus. We are called to take over the entire world with the gospel. For the kingdom of God. We are called to spread this seed everywhere. And that is literally in planting the seed of the gospel. To those in need. And last but not least. We're the carriers of blessing church. We're the ones who bring it to the world. Right now it appears that the world is looking for blessing. And they find it in a thousand different places. They find what they believe to be blessing. In a thousand different places. But no blessing outweighs that which King Jesus brings. No blessing outweighs that which the gospel has done for each and every one of us. Amen?